you turn with me to the scripture reading, the passage in which today's teaching is based. It comes from John chapter 14, and I'll be reading from verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. And this is God's word. You know, in the midst of all that's going on, we're also in a season of Lent. And historically, it's an opportunity for people to, to seek answers to questions about what is life about? Why are we here? Especially in this season of social distancing and danger and risk, it's easy to see that we need answers to these questions because in society, in a society that's placed its hopes in science and technology, in wealth accumulation and education, all that's come to an end right now. It's all come to a halt. And those same things that plagued the ancient times are still wreaking havoc in our city and in our world today. We haven't figured it out. So science and technology, education, wealth accumulation, these things are not sufficient. So how do you deal? How do you deal with this? You know, Denzel Washington, uh, in the early 2000s, in an interview with uh, Terry Gross on NPR, he was promoting one of his movies. Basically, he says this. He says, as a professed Christian, that he's tried everything in his life, but all the roads led back to the Bible. And that's what the Gospel of John uh, does. And the author of this Gospel, John, he answers the question, who is Jesus Christ? Because all the roads lead back to him for some reason. That's what Denzel Washington says. That's the purpose of this series. The seven I am claims of Jesus in the Gospel according to John. And here he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. What does that mean? It means three things. That Jesus gives us access to a real home. He gives us a real center. And because of that, he gives us a real worth. A real home, a real center, and real worth. First, we're going to look at Jesus Christ giving us access to a real home. In the previous chapter, in chapter 13, Jesus Christ predicts that Peter, the apostle Peter, would deny him. 
that one of his disciples would deny him and that he would suffer at the hands of his betrayers. What does it mean if you're a disciple of Jesus? What Jesus says here is that what it means is you're going to experience suffering. You're going to experience trouble. And yet he still says in verse 1, do not be troubled. Trust in God. In other words, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Don't be anxious about the end. Yes, you may suffer, but don't worry because I, Jesus, am all-powerful. I'm all-powerful, but I'm about to become weak. And that's what God will use to redeem the world through my suffering, through my shame, through my death. So you're going to suffer as well. You're going to be in trouble as well, but don't worry. Now think about this. If Jesus is suffering overcomes sin. If Jesus is suffering on the cross, overcame sin and death, and that's the one thing that will ever truly be able to ruin you, truly destroy you, even death can't destroy you now. Even death can't truly ruin you anymore. That's why Jesus says, do not be troubled. Don't live in fear. Don't live in anxiety, he says. And he's speaking to us right now. Don't live in fear. Don't live in anxiety. Now, why did the disciples have any reason to be troubled in the first place? It's because they felt they had potential. They felt that they had options. They had freedom. They were living life in their minds. And all that's about to come to an end because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, trust in God, trust also in me. Their suffering was, uh, it may not even be so overt. It's an internal fear. Their suffering was like an inner cosmic earthquake that shook the foundation of their lives. It shook everything that they thought was real. It shook up everything that they thought was familiar to them. It's what we call home. What is home? Home is a place where you can rest, a place where you can hang your hat, where you're comfortable. It's a place where you can let your hair down. It's a place where you have privacy and you have security. When you are home, ideally, Home is supposed to be a safe place where everybody knows you and knows you at your worst, but yet still accepts you and still loves you. And Jesus Christ here says, I am the way. I am home. Now, that's a remarkable statement. Why? Because right now, we're all home. Every one of us are in our living rooms right now or wherever you are in your homes. We're all home, and yet no one feels safe. We're all home, and yet no one feels secure. Uh, there, it's because there could be something in us right now that's killing us. Wow, that's amazing if you think about that. That every one of us is living with this great anxiety and fear that there's something inside them that could actually be destroying them. They can't see it. They don't know what it is. In a way, there's no better metaphor right now to show us how displaced we all have been because there's no place that's safe. The reality is that no place is safe. It's never been safe. That's what the Bible's been saying all along in our lives. And the disciples, they're troubled because it's just dawning on them that they're not safe. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. He offers them a home. He promises them a home. Now, in verses 2 and 3, he says, do not worry right? He says, you have a real foundation. Even though the world is falling apart here, you have a real foundation. Verse 4, he says, you know the place, the way to the place where I'm going. Now, Thomas, in verse 5, he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how do we know the way? Now, you have to know that in most cases throughout the Gospels, the disciples think they know. They act like they know, or they really believe that they know. And Jesus says, you actually don't know. 
You actually have no idea what you're talking about. But here, Jesus says, you know, and the disciples say, we have no idea what you're talking about. What don't they know? What is it that they're having a hard time grasping? It's that everyone has a longing for a place. Everyone has a longing for a place where they belong, where they're safe. Jesus says, you're longing for this way to that place. We all have it innately in us, inherently in us, a home. And he says, I am the way. It's very, very important. Why? Because it's in Genesis chapter 1, all the way to the beginning of the Bible, the first book of the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, in paradise, what did we have? We had a home. We had a place. It was a secure place. It was a safe place. We walked with God in that place. We were in tune with God. We were in tune with nature. There was no disease. There was no sickness. There were no crimes. There was no fear, no reason to fear. Everything was secure and safe. We were loved and we were accepted and so we can rest. God the Father walked with us. And so if you remember that hymn, Perfect Submission, All is at Rest, I in my Savior am happy and blessed. That was the Garden of Eden. But when man chose to rebel, when man chose to sin, when we chose to sin against God, go against God, because we felt that God was withholding our happiness from us. When we chose to leave the security of being in God's presence, we lost that security. And now there's a deep insecurity. And God drove us out of the garden, and God placed a flaming sword flashing back and forth at the entrance of the garden. So that basically it represented what? Because he was guarding the way, there's no more access. No more access. What does that mean? Ever since that we were driven out of the garden, out of God's presence because of our sin, we've been working to get back into the garden on our own. And we've been dying to get back into the garden on our own. That sword represents that anybody who tries to get in on their own without God, without God's presence, will fall to the sword. They will not get access. They will die trying to get in. And so we're completely displaced. We're completely homeless. That's us right now. You're only feeling that a little bit more relevantly and poignantly because you're in your living room and you're afraid to go outside, but the reality is it's never been safe ever. That's us right now. Our current condition is isolation and fear and confusion, but that's not new. It's a reality beneath the false security of wealth and the false security of a home and power and relationships, and it shows us how much we've been longing for a home. It's why the ancients were longing for a promised land. It's why King David rejoiced and he danced naked as the ark was making its way back into Jerusalem because before the days of the temple, that's what represented God's presence. It's what represented access. David was bursting in joy and rejoicing. Why? Because he had access. He had access. David knew that in God's presence, he was safe. There was security. He had a home. And yet we today, we know we're homeless. We're displaced. Our suffering teaches us what? That the foundations that we have been resting in, the places where we've been nesting in, so to speak, places where we've been trying to build a home, it'll never be our true rest. That fear, that the fear of illness and contagion and death, you know, it's a discomfort that no amount of money or health or education or relationships right now can cure. And our suffering merely shows us what's always been true, but we refuse to believe that we never had security ever apart from God as our Father.
The Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. I urge you as aliens and strangers. He's saying that right now you are homeless. You may have a home, but it's a false security. You can't build your security in that. You're truly homeless. You're a foreigner. You're like a, a resident alien. A resident alien is somebody who has all the rights and privileges of a citizen, but is not a citizen of a country. So their real home is some other place. Their real, they, they just live here. They just made a home here, but that's not their real home. So they enjoy some things here as if they were citizens, but it's not home. When you're away in college, you have an apartment, you have your own kitchen, you might have your own refrigerator, you might have the same vegetables and meats, you might have a bed. And when you cook, it sometimes tastes good, but it'll never be home. It'll never be home. And so you just kind of deal with it. Our struggles remind us that we're not home, not yet. But we don't want to believe that, do we? We never want to believe that. So when we're unhappy, we say it must be our job. So what do we do? We go looking for a new job. Nothing wrong with finding a new job, right? But it's when you rest in a career as home, you will always be displaced. You will always be uncomfortable. We say, oh, it must be my spouse. And in our society today, statistics show us that at least over half the country believes then they can get a new start by finding a new spouse. What are they saying? I literally need a new home. In the early 2000s, John DeGroff, uh, he's a, a, he wrote a pretty famous book called Affluenza, The All-Consuming Epidemic, and he says this. He describes a social phenomenon called affluenza as a painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from a dogged pursuit of more. And the impact of that is isolation, declining social capital, and a lack of a sense of place. He says, once we were a nation of joiners, now we're just a nation of loners. We're losing a sense of place, even though all of our pursuits is to find a sense of place. What does that mean? The reason why we're greedy the reason why we're so socially needy, the reason why we're so arrogant at times, the reason why we're never satisfied with what we have is because we're homeless. And if you're home, if you're home, it's a place where you can rest. And that means that because we're never satisfied, because we're greedy, because the reason why we're doing all these things is because we're restless. We're constantly working. We're constantly in anxiety because we're working to find, to satisfy the things that we, we need to build a home. Look at Jesus when he says, yes, you're going to suffer, but do not be troubled because in me you have a way. In me you have a place. In me you have a home. That's what he says. On the cross, there's a criminal, and he's crucified with Jesus. And he realizes who Jesus is, and so he turns to Jesus and he asks him, on the cross, he's crucified beside Jesus, he asks him, remember me. And Jesus responds, today you will be with me in paradise. In other words, what he's saying is, you are remembered. You are accepted. You have access. You're in. It means on one hand, heaven is an actual place. It's more than just a concept. That means Jesus is more than a concept. 
more than just a teaching. It means that Jesus is more than a teaching. It means that heaven is more than an ideal, which means that Jesus is more than an ideal of philosophy. Jesus is actually preparing a place for you. But, but it means that if you're home, right, it means you have a father. Jesus says in verse 7 to 9, if you know me, if you see me, you know the father, you see the father. In verses 6 and 7, he says, no one comes to the father except through me. You have access through him. There's a soulful rest that's more restful than any type of physical rest you're seeking right now. And he says that the way to that soulful rest is through him. A Christian is someone who sees that everything that he longs for is embodied in Jesus. He is the way. He is the way to the Father. In Jesus, God is our Father. And that's why when he teaches his disciples to pray, the one time he teaches them to pray, how does he teach them? You begin with our Father. The problem is we're looking for other homes. We're looking for other fathers. Uh, it's so common to find security in our salary or in our work because then I feel comfortable with myself. Then I feel secure. Then I feel safe. Then I feel I have a home. But what if you lose your job? What if you lose your salary? Then you're going to be uncomfortable. There's going to be extreme discomfort. You're going to lose your sense of self. You're going to lose your sense of home. T.S. Eliot, the great poet, he once said, we are hollow men we are stuffed men. In other words, we're fat and we're filled with things that we don't need because we're so hollow and empty inside. Jesus Christ says, I am the way. I am the home. The second thing he says is that he is the center. Home is where the Father is. It's where you're loved. It's where you're accepted. And what Jesus says that he is the way, he's saying that he is the way to the Father. In verse 8, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that's going to be enough for us. Show us what's really real. Show us what's true. Because I thought this was true, and you're saying that there's another place. That means that there's another reality. That means that there's a deeper reality. Show us the truth. Then I'll believe. If you see the Father, then we'll know that all of this is real, that your promise is real, that everything that you're talking about is real. In Genesis 15, Abram asked the same thing. Abram asked God, how do I know that you're real? How do I know that you're going to be faithful, that you're good for it? And so what does God do? God comes down and he reveals himself in this blazing torch, this flaming blazing torch that burns through the halves of these animals that he tells Abram to set up. So when Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father, what is he saying? He's saying, I am that blazing torch. I am that very presence of God in the flesh. So if you know me, if you see me, you see God. Wow, that is an amazing thing. What does that tell you? I mean, Philip is a disciple, yet he still doesn't really get it. That's what it tells you. That means that it is possible to grow up in the church. It is possible to be a leader in the church. It is possible to plug into your community groups and be close to people who are close to God, to be intimate with people who are intimate with God. A lot of times we make our home in that alone, don't we? And yet still not really know God, to still not really be intimate with God. I mean, Philip is a disciple, and he still doesn't get it. It's possible to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is your Savior and Lord, and still completely miss what that means. Because it's one thing to gain knowledge about somebody. 
It's one thing to gain knowledge somebody through meeting with them, through gathering with them, talking with them, dialoguing with them, arguing with them. And you could do that for years and years, but it's another thing to establish mutual values, to have them capture your heart, to be captivated by their vision, to have a sense of mutual sacrifice, mutual commitment through shared experiences. Then you go deeper. It's that bridge from a casual relationship to a deeply personal relationship. That's how you love somebody. And if that's the way that finite beings grow deeper, imagine how much more infinitely you can really know God. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. If you really knew me, you knew my Father as well. That means that if you really know uh, this truth, if you really know this deeper reality, it's going to shape your life. I mean, you can have an opinion. You can have a philosophy. You can understand a concept, hold to a philosophy. But that, that's what we call subjective reality. You know, we treat that as truth sometimes. But to know truth means I have an objective reality. That is not something that you hold. It's something that holds you. It's not something that you have. It's something that has you. It's not something that, that you come to understand. It comes to you and captures you. You get that? It's something that, it's, it's like a conviction. You can hold an opinion, but a conviction holds you. To know Jesus is to have that truth, an objective reality that answers all of life's deepest questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What am I worth? Having answers to those questions then gives you a foundation. If you understand and truly hold to the answer to the question of why you are here, what meaning is there for you, what you're worth, that serves as a foundation and what we call motivational center because it shapes you, it changes you, it helps you endure all things in life, all suffering in life. But think about this. If this claim is true, if Jesus' claim is true, that he is that truth, he is that meaning, he is the center, what can be a motivational center for us, then why doesn't everybody just flock towards him? And the answer is this. It's not because Jesus Christ is impersonal. It's because he's too personal. Jesus doesn't want you to just come to a philosophy. He's not here to just have you come to his teaching. He's not here uh, to get you to just understand what he's saying. He wants you to give up your life. He doesn't want you to just sit and eat with him. He wants you to take him in as the bread of life, the source of life, all of your worth. Being a Christian means that your relationship with Jesus challenges your goals, challenges your desires. I mean, you may have your life kind of planned out. Some of us, there are people uh, watching right now, their lives are just completely mapped out. They want to have X amount of dollars by the time they reach a certain age. They want a certain kind of neighborhood and a certain kind of education for their children. And it's all mapped out. Their lives are planned a particular way at step by step. So that's their motivational center. They have something that's driving them towards that. But being a Christian means that Jesus is going to challenge every one of those things, incrementally and overall. He's going to challenge your goals and your desires. He's going to challenge what you love and why you love it. Because it's not just about the overt reasons for loving somebody or loving something. It's those covert reasons, those deeply hidden reasons. These things give me a sense of worth. It answers the question as to why I'm here. What am I worth? What is my meaning in life? Jesus is saying, I am that meaning in life. Everything else is going to fall apart. 
Everything else is going to come to an end. Everything else is going to come to a halt. But Jesus Christ is everlasting and real, more real than the reality that you know and perceive. And because of that, a relationship with Jesus is going to shape what you hold at your center, what you hold as your core values, your real values. And because Jesus Christ says, I am the truth, that's going to challenge every other version of truth that you hold to. I mean, we all respond and act to things in accordance with what we believe as true. I mean, if you are harsh to your friend, you get into an argument with a friend, and you treat them really badly, and they're like, why are you treating me this way? And you say, well, it's because you, I heard you said this, and I heard you said that. And they say, I didn't say that. You're testing truth, you see. They're holding to a particular type of truth that's causing them to react, respond. This truth is going to shape the way we act. And so if you believe that wealth and power and sex are the keys to a happy life, then you're going to do everything and anything to get wealth and power and build relationships because that is what's going to make you feel a sense of worth. That's what's going to make you feel acceptable and powerful and, and alive. Jesus says, I am the truth. Make me your motivational center and you will find meaning and worth in me. It's not that loving all those other things are wrong. It's that we need to love Christ more. We're called to love Jesus that much more and let that shape you for all time. Jesus Christ says, I am the way, I am the home, I am that place, I am your rest, I am your center. If you hold him at your center, you won't be anxious. Lots of reasons to be afraid, you won't be anxious. Lastly, he says, I am your worth. I am the life. Verse 7, Jesus says, from now on, you do know and you have seen. That's remarkable. Why? Because anyone in the Old Testament that's ever seen God would die. That's why God had to veil himself. It was so bad that he would have to veil himself in a fire. That way the people can't come too close. He would veil himself as a radiant cloud during the day. That way the people can't come too close. Abram and Moses, they only saw a glimpse of the home, a glimpse of the real reality, a glimpse of the center. But Jesus Christ says, you have seen God. Because you have seen me, you have seen God. That means that you have seen God face to face and you live. Why? Because I am the life. From now on, you do know him. You have new life. That word life, if you've been here the last month, that word life appears all through these, these messages and texts that we've been looking at over the past month. It's the Greek word zoe. And you'd know, if you were here this past month, that Jesus is not saying, when he says, I am the life, he's not saying, I'm here to sustain. If you come to me, you're going to just live longer. That's not what he's saying that I'm going to sustain your physical life. I'm going to give you the food you need. I'm going to give you the water that you need to drink. I'm going to give you the sun to keep shining on you so that plants will continue to grow and your lives will just sustain over and over. Who wants to live in these circumstances much longer? You see that? That's not what he's talking about. I'm here to protect you from disease, give you wealth, give you health. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is I'm here to give you a full life. Zoe life. Because if you place your trust in Jesus, if you place your life in Jesus, you're living out of a promise of something greater, a home that he's preparing, a presence 
that is unending and everlasting, so unending and so beautiful and brilliant that it says that there is no light. I did not see a lamp in that holy city because God's presence is the light. That's what he says. I'm here to give full life because you're living out of fullness that Jesus promises despite disease, despite suffering, maybe even through death. So Jesus says, stop looking elsewhere. Stop looking somewhere else for this because every time you look elsewhere, you're going to come up empty. I am the fullness of life. Jesus will take you as you are. You may be broken. You may be sinful. There may be tons of reasons why you have avoided Jesus until this time. There may be tons of reasons why you've been avoiding coming to church at this time. But Jesus will take you as you are, a broken person, a sinful person, a homeless, displaced, lost, and suffering person. And what he's going to do is he's going to work through that brokenness and bring out a coming joy that will subsume all that brokenness, just kind of envelop all that brokenness through his suffering and through his death to birth you into newness and joy and peace. The poet Walt Whitman, he asks, O me, O life. That endless struggle, he says. That endless question. To answer what, he says? That real life exists. I'm interpreting the poem. He says that real life exists, something greater than what I have today. That you can experience real love. We resort and so quickly fall into just earthly loves because there's a longing. There's an emptiness. Jesus says, I am the fullness. You can actually experience something even greater than that love. An entrance into the heart that intensifies into a deeper desire to know and to serve that person. That's what happens when you love somebody. He says, when you come to me, There will be an entrance into your heart that intensifies into a deeper desire to know me and to serve me even more. Because when you love somebody, there is this inherent desire to sacrifice for that person. We all long for that love. We all understand that love. It gives us life. So when Jesus says, I am the life, he's saying, I love you. I have sought after you. I know you. To the depths, I know all your sin and all your brokenness, everything you've gone through, and I accept you, and I embrace you, and I love you. I will protect you. I will do whatever it takes to sacrifice for you, to save you. He lets you into his heart. When you let someone into your heart like that, it puts you at risk. It puts you at risk because now you know that you're vulnerable. They can hurt you. The very essence of love is a sacrifice as a result. You can get hurt. You can can be scarred. It's a covenantal sacrifice. It's a covenantal service. How do you get it? How do you get that kind of love? Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. But then in Matthew chapter 8, he says, foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. In other words, Jesus Christ is saying, I'm homeless. I'm preparing a place for you, but I'm homeless. I came to prepare a place for you, and I'm not just preparing a physical place. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
what he's saying is, I didn't just come to prepare a physical place for you. I came to prepare a cosmic place for you. And so he came to become cosmically homeless, forsaken by God. What he's saying is, I'm homeless. I have found my home in the Father. I have found my home in God, and now I've lost my way. I have no place. I have no home. I have no rest. And so you see him working, and he's laboring on the cross, and he's weeping and sweating. He's sweating, and he's bleeding on the cross. You see that. Every other place in the Gospels, Jesus refers to God as his Father, except one time, and that's on the cross. Because on the cross in that moment, the wrath of God was being poured out on Jesus as a penalty for our sins. It was the one time that Jesus didn't revert to God as his father. If you have a home, you have a father. But Jesus Christ lost the father on the cross. So he lost his home. He lost the way. And so he says, why? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ was disowned on the cross, and so he lost his center. It's what he lived for. It's what gave him foundation. It's what gave him mission and meaning. And on the cross, Jesus Christ gave up his spirit. And so he lost his life. Remember that flaming sword in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden? The only way to enter into our home was to go under the sword. And we would die trying to get in. So what did Jesus do? He died. He died so that we can get in. He died in our place. The prophet Isaiah writes, Jesus Christ was pierced for our transgressions. He went under the sword. The punishment that brought us peace, the punishment that brought us rest was upon him. So on the cross, the wrath of God fell on Jesus and he was completely and utterly alone and there was no way and there was no truth and it costed him his life and identity and status and meaning, everything. And he did it for us so that we would have access access we would be accepted jesus christ lost his home so that we would have a home jesus christ lost the father so that we would have the father jesus christ lost jesus christ lost the center lost the truth lost his life yes he died but he lost the zoe life the one thing that gave him fullness and meaning and purpose in life the father his center and yet he lost it all and so on the cross jesus christ there was an earthquake the rock split physically on the cross you see the land shaken the holy temple curtain had torn in two but more importantly jesus christ was experiencing a cosmic quake in the foundations of his soul when he was forsaken by god and yet even in that greatest suffering that's why it says do not be troubled because it's through his suffering that we would be rescued even through that greatest suffering he was reciting scripture and still trusting God, knowing that he was being abandoned by God, he still trusted in God's promise. He still trusted that God would be faithful, and he was listening for God. He said, why? He was asking a question. He was listening for God. If Jesus Christ lost a father, yet still trusted in his promise, even through death, you can trust him in any suffering. You can have hope in any suffering. Look at the beauty of Jesus. Look at the faithfulness of Jesus. It's why we can rest in him. It's why Jesus can be the center, the truth, our life, our worth. 
Philip says, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us to trust in you. And Jesus says, don't you know me? Don't you know me? I'm all you need. Other homes, other truths, other promises, those lies that we talk about in our head, other promises, we pursue them, and we treat those things as a way of increasing our potential and meaning and worth when it actually leads to decrease our potential and meaning and worth. But Jesus Christ is the only way in truth and life that even in suffering leads us to live a bigger life because it makes us more like Jesus. And Jesus is much bigger than us. So our suffering should convince us that there is only one true resting place, one truth, one place of worth and meaning. And if you trust in Jesus as your way and truth in life, it's going to give you poise, tremendous power, even in the midst of trouble, even in the midst of contagion and sickness and death. These ancients, they believed it. These ancients, they suffered it. They experienced it. And yet they endured. In fact, they didn't just endure. The church thrived. And so even in our world today, I believe that the church will thrive through this. We're poised to thrive. We're set up that way. We're set up to be in the catacombs during the time of the Roman Empire persecution. And it's those prayers Malcolm X later on says that it's those prayers that overturned the great Roman Empire, not military might, not, not military progress and wealth. So let's turn to Christ. Let's turn to him with faith, surrendering all the things that we believed as our way and truth in life, and turn to Christ as our only home, our resting place, our comfort, and let's respond in song and say, you are the truth. And that gives me worth. I trust in that. Let's pray because Christ is victorious.